hppodcraft.com. There was trouble aboard the Washington Boulevard bus. Rye had expected trouble sooner or later in her journey. She had put off going until loneliness and hopelessness drove her out. She believed she might have one group of relatives left alive. A brother and his two children 20 miles away in Pasadena. That was a day's journey one way, if she were lucky. The unexpected arrival of the bus as she left her Virginia Road home had seemed to be a piece of luck. Until the trouble began. Two young men were involved in a disagreement of some kind, or, more likely, a misunderstanding. They stood in the aisle, grunting and gesturing at each other, each in his own uncertain T-stance as the bus lurched over the potholes. The driver seemed to be putting some effort into keeping them off balance. Still, their gestures stopped just short of contact. Mock punches, hand games of intimidation to replace lost curses. People watched the pair, then looked at one another and made small, anxious sounds. Two children whimpered. Sounds like a typical bus trip in L.A. to me, man. I gotta say, it's a lot different in Yorkshire riding a bus. Lots of smiles, maybe a tip of the cap. Mm -hmm. No urine. There are some things about L.A. I do not miss. So you're Doc Hollywood now, huh? You've left the big bad city <laughs> to go live among the good-hearted small-town people, always smiling and tipping caps. <laughs> Maybe somebody said something untoward at the barn dance, but it's nothing like the crack houses and gang warfare you had to endure here in Santa Monica, huh? Well, yeah, actually, <laughs> I don't yeah. recall you being a heavy mass transit user when you lived here. You had that sweet gold Honda that you, you drove around. Well, when that sweet gold Honda died on me, hey, remember when mm. I started dating Rachel? I didn't have a car. That's true, you didn't. I had to take the bus, yeah. Now, I use the buses and trains a lot, and people in general are very kind Yeah, here. There's lots of smiles and hat tips in Los Angeles. Well, I will admit it's a city of four million people, so occasionally someone's going to show you their balls. <laughs> Law of averages, that's just going to happen. You'll think maybe that guy just sat in some gum over there, but you'll know in your heart what you just saw. At, at night as you try to sleep, you will know what you saw. <laughs> I have to admit I've never seen a physical fight on the bus, but I have seen arguments and altercations that have gotten sure. close to what was described in that opening there. Yeah. Uh, by the way, what were we listening to? Oh, that was the opening of the story we're covering today, Speech Sounds, which takes place in Los Angeles, a city known well by the author, Octavia Butler. We're, of course, covering Octavia Butler as part of Black History Month. And although we've talked a little African-American history in the country, it's mostly just been an excuse to cover some really awesome science fiction stories. Oh, my God. We started the month with Octavia Butler, and I was really happy to read another story by her. Also, another award winner, yeah. uh, Speech Sounds, was first published in Asimov's Science Fiction Magazine in 1983, and it won the Hugo Award for Best Short Story in 1984. Deservedly so. And who was our reader? That was Heather Klinky. I knew that. I was pretending like I didn't know, but I know. how can you not know? It's a little game we play, and it never stops being fun. <laughs> <laughs> Heather's a big fan of the post-apocalyptic survival genre, so I said, Heather, get a load of this one. You're going to like it. In two weeks in a row now, we've had some somewhat different takes on that survival genre. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. Last week, it was a comet that killed everybody. Yeah. This week, it's a mysterious pandemic that has destroyed speech and made people emotionally unstable. And both of these feel like almost fresh takes on the genre. Yeah, I, I never would have believed that I would get tired of zombie movies, but yeah. here we are. It's like when we were in high school, man, Oh yeah, I was so starved for zombie entertainment. I would rent any crappy movie 
I was such an easy audience. Any crappy zombie movie and watch it multiple times. Exactly. But but today there's too many options. There's like Pride and Prejudice. and so, There's like Tony zombie movies, <laughs> blue collar zombie movies. There's Wait, comedies. Tony Danza zombie movies? Is that what you said? Well, wait a minute. There is one more zombie movie I'd like to see. The Tony Danza zombie movie. Hold me closer, Tony Danza. <laughs> but again, this is not a zombie scenario in this story. It's no. something else. Butler doesn't explain what happened right away. No. She just immediately places you in this bizarre, almost silent scene. The story starts off with our protagonist, a woman called Rye. She's on a bus trying to get from Los Angeles to Pasadena to see if any of her family is still alive. She says she left her Virginia Road home and was lucky to catch the bus. Virginia Road is that's just by Crenshaw, a little south of the 10. You know mm-hmm. what that? Yeah. And she says the journey to Pasadena would be one day if she were lucky. And that sounds right if she was real lucky (laughs) well because the metro area i mean well it's 13 million people if you include pasadena and the whole metro area second largest in the country the sprawl is enormous and without the freeways working yeah it's no longer much of a connected city yeah if you had to hoof it some of that distance it would take you definitely a full day see i thought you were meant it was taking you a day even now in los angeles it can take a long time in the car (laughs) during rush hour take you about an hour and a half in bad traffic to get from where i live to pasadena so on the bus two men are for the lack of a better word displaying at one another Mm -hmm. like they're gonna fight you know trying to show who's stronger or more in control of the situation right and the men they can't talk so they just kind of grunt and do signs to each other in an aggressive manner Uh, something has happened in the world and these people are no longer able to communicate it's always even with the ability to communicate it's super uncomfortable on the bus or on the train if some kind of altercation breaks out yeah because obviously you don't want to get involved but you're trapped in the space with the people and i think she captures that well, mm-hmm. the way the other rioters are looking at each other anxiously. Rye makes her way to the back door as these guys get more and more aggressive, and then they start swinging. The bus driver had been trying to keep them off balance by swerving around the road, but then the driver hits this pothole, which pushes the combatants together, and that's enough to spark the fight. Yeah, the driver sees that the fight is going on, so he slams on the brakes, throwing the men forward into people, and then more fights break out because of those guys slamming into other people. Yeah, it's like a bar fight in a Western or something like that, <laughs> except maybe a little less fun. I like th- this line. People screamed or squawked in fear. Those nearby scrambled to get out of the way. Three more young men roared in excitement and gestured wildly. Just like the perfect description of all the reactions. If you see one of those YouTube bus fight videos. That's a thing? Yeah, there's a lot of them where people will film some kind of fight that breaks out on the bus. In fact, there was one that became a huge viral hit. It was that old bearded man who stands up. He, you know, he's like 80 years old, but he's totally ripped. And then he takes this young guy down who's oh, whoa. giving him some crap. It was so popular, they turned it into a Danny Trejo movie called Badass. <laughs> and I think there's a few sequels to Badass as well. Man. Uh, and it, you know, it all starts with a fight on the bus. You never know. Bus fighting may one day overtake the zombie genre. Man, I'm so out of the loop on what's going on in the world. So the bus stops and Rye and a bunch of other people get off the bus as the fighting continues. And they stick around to see what happens because this is one of the few buses left. Buses don't come very often, maybe once a day or once a week. They don't really ever know. And as soon as you actually get a bus, you want to stick, stay on it until you get to where you need to go because you don't know when yeah. you're going to be able to find one again. This bus was only going to get her halfway to Pasadena and she was going to have to walk the rest of the way, which was going to be super dangerous. Rai doesn't know if these guys have guns or anything like that, so she hides behind a tree to see how things are going to play out. Right, the guys who are fighting. And just then, this blue Ford pulls up in front of the bus, and this guy in a trench coat and a beard jumps out. This is a really odd occurrence because running cars are also rare. I mean, cars that are functional at all because there's no fuel anymore. 
And it's, it says that cars that still ran were as likely to be used as weapons as they were to serve as transportation. So you don't want to stick around if a car shows up. Yeah. She's naturally wary when the man gets out of the car and he beckons to her directly. It's almost as if he stopped when he saw her, maybe, because mm-hmm. he did a U-turn after passing the bus to come back. He looks at the people standing around and he points to the bus with his left hand. And then Ryan notices this because left-handed people seem to be less affected by what whatever has happened that made people mute. I thought that was so interesting because she doesn't explain the cause of all of this. Mm-hmm. Probably because the main character doesn't even know. Yeah. But it's obviously affected people's brains specifically. And this teases out a clue, this left-handedness thing, that some researcher could maybe use to figure out what's going on if there were any unimpaired researchers. Right. But about 15% of people in the population are left-handed, mm-hmm. including myself. Yeah. I think there's still wide disagreement and various theories about why people are left-handed. But we do know that it's related to language processing in the brain. The majority of people have evolved to have speech and language control in the left hemisphere of their brain, which also controls the right hand. Oh, yeah. Handedness seems to be connected to language in the brain. So somebody who's lefty is likely to have developed language centers in a different part of the brain in the right side. So maybe this disease only attacks one hemisphere, and that's the reason that left-handed people are faring better. Yeah. So I don't know. I I just really got into that one little detail. It suggests that she had in Octavia had a lot of thoughts about what might have caused this, but she didn't put them into the story. Mm-hmm. But good writer prepar- preparation, she knew what it was. Right. And, you know, she drops that little detail for you. I just thought that was so It's cool. really cool. Yeah, yeah. We also find out that Rye is packing. Mm-hmm. She keeps her gun hidden. Yes, she's got a forty-five concealed in her jacket. She steps out and signs to the guy that there's fighting in the bus, and the guy takes off his coat, and he's got an LAPD uniform on with a baton and a gun. Also odd, because as she writes here, there was no more LAPD, no more any large organization, governmental or private. There were neighborhood patrols and armed individuals. That was all. So he takes something out of his pocket, and he tosses it in the bus. Gas starts pouring out, tear gas. The cop had motioned for her to go to the back of the bus before he did this, so she could help people get out. I mean, he's basically doing this to clear the bus and stop the fighting. People came out of the bus. Children were in there. Yeah, they're all crying and messed up. The bearded cop and Rye help people get off the bus, and the tear gas seems to have stopped the fighting. They're pouring out. They're all beaten up and scared. The driver is pissed at bearded cop and starts making rude, angry gestures at him. Bearded cop doesn't let things escalate and doesn't engage him, and his behavior makes Rye think that he's less affected because he's acting in a non-animalistic way. Which is actually a good way to get yourself beaten up, she reveals, right? Yeah. Because people in this world are specifically unable to control their envy, their jealousy. That's what leads to their rage. And so if you come off as having an attitude of superiority, you're going to get beaten or probably killed by people. They'll perceive it and they'll tear you to pieces. Yeah. She comments on this bus. It was the driver's property, his livelihood. He had pasted old magazine pictures of items he would accept as fair on its sides. Then he would use what he collected to feed his family or to trade. If his bus did not run, he did not eat. On the other hand, if the inside of his bus was torn apart by senseless fighting, he would not eat very well either. He was apparently unable to perceive this. The bearded cop ignores the driver and makes a gesture to Rye to go with him in his car. And she shakes her head, no way. (laughs) But then he asks again. The people who are on the bus see this and they seem to think that, that she was with him. Or she has got some connection to this guy. Yeah. And a man from the group who's taller and younger than Rye walks up to her. And she doesn't think she can outrun him. So she just kind of stands her ground. She makes a gesture for him to stop. And he does so. But then he starts making some very rude gestures, sexual gestures. Right. It's, it says loss of verbal language. It spawned a whole new set of obscene gestures. <laughs> this is stuff we haven't even, <laughs> we don't even know what kind of stuff he's throwing out here. He implies that the bearded cop and her are doing it. He and his buddies want to have sex with her as well. 
uh, perhaps not consensually. Uh, she just stares at him and he walks off. Bearded cop is standing and waiting. She knows in her head that this guy could overpower her, could outrun her. So she's already made the decision in her head. She's, she'll kill him yeah. if he tries something. And I think that he senses that. Right. And that's the reason he doesn't pursue it. The bearded cop gestures again. This time he takes off his gun to try and show her that he doesn't mean her any harm. She thinks that, well, maybe he's all right. Maybe he's just lonely like she is. And she's been alone for three years. The illness killed her husband, her children, sister, her parents. She says the illness was quick, like a stroke. But it was highly specific. Language was always lost or severely impaired. It was never regained. Often there was also paralysis, intellectual impairment, death. She walks to the bearded cop and the other men start to hoot and holler and whistle. The bearded man ignores them. She says if he had acknowledged them in any way that she would not go with him. She says that the man who lives across the street from her rarely washed since the illness hit and he would just kind of pee wherever he was. <laughs> he had two women that took care of his gardens and him as well for protection. He wanted Rye to be his third woman in his little herd or tribe or whatever you want to call it. Yeah. But Bearded Cop, he was clean and groomed and nothing like that guy. That's such a messed up scene, this totally animalistic, insane man across the street who's slowly building a harem, even though he's <laughs> right. He's disgusting and peeing all over the place and mm. hasn't bathed. He can still acquire women, but that's also such a threat, that nasty guy. He's looking at her. You're going to be next. So that's uh, why she had to get out of there. She gets into the car and drives off with Bearded Cop. When they get to Figueroa in Washington, he stops and asks her which way to go. And she says left. And the guy drives that way. And this relaxes her right. a bit. Well, she doesn't say. Well, no, no. She, she Signs it or indicates it, yes. Right. Uh, the city is all abandoned and burned out. Wrecked cars, all that kind of stuff. Bearded cop gets out this gold chain around his neck and it has a black stone on it. This stone indicates his name. And she thinks that he means that his name is Obsidian. Well, that's what she decides to think of him as. Who knows what he's trying to communicate with it, right. other than it's some kind of identity. Since people can't talk, they carry something around with them so that people can have some kind of name. It's kind of strange to me because this image, having a name only really works if there's, you're trying to explain something to a, a third person. Like you don't really need sure. a, a name if, if it's just you and another person. Well, I don't know about that. I, I mean, I think that part of the purpose of a name is that it's a representation of a person that you can hold in your mind that's simpler than the sum of them in a, in a way. Yeah. Like, for instance, you still remember the names of people, but I bet you couldn't necessarily picture exactly what they look like if you haven't yeah. seen them in a long That's time. true. That's true. So I think it has to do with how we, I guess, how we think of one another. So I, I, it seems to be an instinct that humans have. Yeah. Even if you couldn't say it out loud, you still want some representation. of. I mean, it's the first thing people do even across, you know, now if you're talking to somebody who doesn't speak your language, you can assume you're going to communicate each other's name to each other. I don't know. Yeah. I think it has more to do with that. But I hear what you're saying. Yeah, you would point at yourself and say, Chaka. But it seems pretty useless. With you know, <laughs> I mean, I think they sense the futility of it in right. the scene here. Uh, she takes out her trinket, which is a pin in the shape of a stalk of wheat. Rye. Uh, she thinks people probably think her name is Wheat, but it doesn't really matter. <laughs> yeah, I, I wouldn't come up with Rye. There really doesn't seem to be much civilization for people to worry about names. And there's a, there was a small thing here in the scene. Uh, when he hands her pin back to her, it says he caught her hand as she reached for it and rubbed his thumb over her calluses. He's intimate, but he's not pushy. Yeah. And this is a little like I thought the character in the comment last week. Oh, yeah. Where they're building that same kind of relationship. He's trying to be polite yeah. while also being direct in, his, in the way he's communicating with her. The other thing, you know, and, and I actually think they do it here that's helpful in terms of uh, them having representations of each other. I think she takes her pin and puts it over his badge to indicate that she's cool with him being a police officer. Yeah. 
So you can still you can use it to detail things too. You know, you could move it around oh, yeah. on a map or say I live over here. You know, All right. sort of the way you know you'd use a little chip or something in the game. Yeah, they stop again, and then he gets out a map. Rye can't read a word of the map, and she used to teach history at UCLA, and now she can't even read anything, even her own stuff. She's got like books of things that she's written at home that she just can't even read anymore because yeah. it's all gibberish to her. She's got a house full of books. It says that she could neither read nor bring herself to use as fuel. She still loves them even though she can't. What a, you know, what a tragedy. Yeah. For some people, losing the ability to read probably wouldn't be that big of a deal. <laughs> but <laughs> it's the, the this main character. It's specifically tragic because she was a professor. She could remember the map. She could still see the shapes and the areas, and she's pretty sure where Pasadena is, and she shows them on the map. She placed her hand over a pale orange patch in the upper right corner. Sounds like Pasadena to me, so. He looks where she pointed, and he folds up the map, and then she realizes that he can actually read. Now, for some reason, this sends her into a fury, and she wants to pull out her gun and shoot him. She's super jealous and angry, and this is, I guess, a side effect of the illness? Yeah, well, it's what's been happening to everybody. She's made it really clear. Jealousy is the big cause of these rages. It's partially why the men started getting irritated when they perceived that she was pairing off with the cop, immediately Uh, became jealous. She realizes that that's what happened, so. She's able to control herself and she calms down. Now, he can see that she was upset, and so he touches her on the mouth, makes this kind of chatter motions with his hand, as if he's asking her if she could speak. And she nodded, yes. Right. Now, he probably felt a bit jealous as well. Yeah, she can tell. It says she nodded and watched his milder envy come and go. He tapped his mouth and forehead and shook his head. He did not speak or comprehend spoken language. The illness had played with them, taking away, she suspected, what what each valued most. It's almost, it's so insidious, it's not even like a random event. So he can read and probably write but can't talk or understand people talking. Which was probably so crucial to him as a police officer. Right. And she can talk and understand speech, but she can't read or write anymore. So Right. Which was crucial to her career. So it's, it's awful. They both have revealed something that was unsafe to share. Right. The fact that they had kind of these abilities that other people didn't. Mm-hmm. He puts his hand on her thigh, totally hitting on her. And she shakes her head, no. Uh, She thinks disease, pregnancy, helpless, solitary agony, no. And he smiles in disbelief because he's like, oh, come on, I'm a handsome dude. You don't (laughs) want to get it on. This is some magic here. So he keeps touching her and she's into it. So she is attracted to him and she wants to have sex, especially since she hasn't been touched by another person in three years. Mm. But sex is just too risky. Even if she survived childbirth, the kids would turn out to be mute, ape-like creatures. And so he gets close to her. She loves the way he smells and he reaches into the glove compartment and she gets a little bit nervous. But then he pulls out this box, which has words on it that she can't read. And then he takes something out of the box. A condom. Yes. Oh, yeah. (laughs) And it says here, then she giggled. She could not remember when she had last giggled. So he grins, points to the back seat of the car, and she's down. Yeah. It says that uh, he lets her put the condom on him. And I think, you know, just to show that this guy is trying to build trust and show, look, I'm not trying to take advantage of you. I'm going to make sure you know that you're in charge here. And then he quickly learns that she's cool with everything. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because he's a little, she's a little more eager than he... He's a little surprised by that. But this is such a miserable world that they live in. Any human contact has got to be such a relief. So after sex, they lie there together. He signs and asks her if she had any kids. And she looks sad. And then he signs to her, are they alive? And then she 
says no, that they died. She had three children. And she thinks that those were the lucky ones. She says that today's children gathered books as well as wood to be burned as fuel. They ran through the streets chasing one another and hooting like chimpanzee. They had no future. They were now all they would ever be. You know, in the beginning of the story, Rice said she had put off going from home until loneliness and hopelessness drove her out. And at this moment, she lets us in on what that really means. Says, until now, every day had brought her closer to the time when she would do what she had left home to avoid doing, putting her gun in her mouth and pulling the trigger. So it was thoughts of suicide that propelled her from home. Yeah. Now that she's met him, it's encouraging. She asks him if he would stay with her, and he's reluctant. She thinks he probably has someone else. Most men who survived the illness were pretty messed up, and he is a rare find. Plus, he seems nice, and he likes to help people out, so... Mm-hmm. women would probably be very attracted to women, want to have him as a mate. Yeah. Through a bunch of gestures, she figures out that he wants to be a cop or is a cop and that that is his responsibility. And she agrees to help him. And then he agrees to stay with her. He points at Pasadena on the map again, but she doesn't care about going there. She's going to, she's with him now. She thinks about her brother who she was going to see. He's probably dead and has been mm-hmm. dead for a long time. Yeah. It was kind of like a last ditch effort to go to Pasadena to see it. She didn't seriously think that anybody would be there, but why not try? Yeah. yeah. You know, if you're going to kill yourself. So she directs him to her house, thinks that she's got enough food to keep him. You know, she's got enough food for herself and then some, and that he would keep her pissing neighbor away <laughs> so she wouldn't have to kill him. Right. She figures, home's okay now that I have a cop to protect me against the animal across the street. Yeah. Although. Before this gets too serious and it's about to get really serious, we should acknowledge the possibility that this guy is a stripper. <laughs> True. Yeah. He might not, not be a cop at all. I did not realize that, but... Uh, Just the outfit he was he left with. Does not mention if the trousers are tearaway or not. He motions that he can no longer dance. Oh. <laughs> this cruel disease... Thing. That's the most valuable thing to him. So things take a very, really dark turn about this part of the story here. Just then a woman runs out in the street as they're driving down the road. Um, They stop and a man chases her with a knife. Both Rye and Obsidian get out of the car and draw their guns. Obsidian jumped from the car, shouting. It was the first time Rye had heard his voice, deep and hoarse from disuse. He made the same sound over and over the way some speechless people did. Da! 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 Rye got out of the car as Obsidian ran toward the couple. He had drawn his gun. Fearful, she drew her own and released the safety. She looked around to see who else might be attracted to the scene. She saw the men glance at Obsidian, then suddenly lunge at the woman. The woman jabbed his face with her glass, but he caught her arm and managed to stab her twice before Obsidian shot him. The man doubled, then toppled, clutching his abdomen. Obsidian shouted, then gestured Rye over to help the woman. Rye moved to the woman's side, remembering that she had little more than bandages and antiseptic in her pack. But the woman was beyond help. She had been stabbed with a long, slender boning knife. She touched Obsidian to let him know the woman was dead. He had bent to check the wounded man who lay still and also seemed dead. But as Obsidian looked around to see what Rye wanted, the man opened his eyes. Face contorted, he seized Obsidian's just-holstered revolver and fired. The bullet caught Obsidian in the temple and he collapsed. The guy shot Obsidian in the head. (laughs) Oh my God. So Rye just shoots the dude dead, kills him right there. That was surprising, man. Yeah, I did not not see that coming. Set up this cop. You know, it seems like a... (laughs) 
main character and you're all interested in him and then boom, he's gone that quickly. He's just dead. Yeah. And it says, and Rye was alone with three corpses. She kneels beside him to try to make sense of everything that's happened because everything was going great for like 15 minutes. She thinks, why isn't this like Walking Dead where they stretch everything out for at least a year? (laughs) And then you think, okay, it's pretty bad, but it gets worse. Then Mm -hmm. two three-year-olds come out of the building, a boy and a girl, and they go to the dead woman and try to wake her. Oh, God, killing me. And so Rye thinks that she's going to barf. So she starts to walk away. As she walks away, she thinks, oh, those kids are old enough to scavenge on their own. Yeah. They're animals. They're going to be nothing more anyway. And I got to say, man, this is this is some bleak stuff. I was feeling mm-hmm. pretty bad at this point in the story. So before she gets to the car, she thinks that Obsidian should be buried. And then that actually makes her vomit. Right. She can't just leave him there. So Rye goes back and kneels next to Obsidian. The kids are scared of Rye. And that makes something click in her. And she goes, wait, I was just going to leave small children on their own. They're going to die. And I was going to let them die. Mm. And she thinks about the man and the woman and that maybe the man was their father. And you know, how did this whole thing play out? What, why did it happen? So Rye drags Obsidian's body to the car and she's going to take the woman's body as well. And the little girl screams, no, Rye is shocked. And the kid says, no, go away. And the little boy says, don't talk, be quiet. Of course he says that because if people can see that they speak, that jealousy will break out and it'll get them killed. Rye now thinks that the woman may have been protecting the children from this man. She thinks these kids must have been born after the silence. Had the disease run its course then or were these children simply immune? Certainly they had had time to fall sick and silent. Rye's mind leaped ahead. What if children of three or fewer years were safe and able to learn language? What if all they needed were teachers, teachers and protectors? Rye remembers that the rage that she felt when she realized Obsidian could read... Maybe it was the dad that felt the same way and he couldn't control himself. Mm-hmm. Rye had been a teacher and a mother and these children needed a protector and needed to be taught. It was up to her to do it. It's all right, she told them. You're going with us too. Come on. She lifted them both, one in each arm. They were so light. Had they been getting enough to eat? The boy covered her mouth with his hand, but she moved her face away. It's all right for me to talk, she told him. As long as no one's around, it's all right. She put the boy down on the front seat of the car, and he moved over without being told to, to make room for the girl. When they were both in the car, Rye leaned against the window, looking at them, seeing that they were less afraid now that they watched her with at least as much curiosity as fear. I'm Valerie Rye, she said, savoring the words. It's all right for you to talk to me. And that is the end of the story. Yeah, that's the end. Your impressions? Uh, It's uh, great. I loved it. It was one of those where when I was reading it, I forgot I was reading a story. I was just in it. It really took me away. I was, it felt also, I wanted more, you know, it really feels like the first act of a film, you know, now she's got these kids, they know they can speak to each other, but they have to hide it from everybody. You know, what are they going to do next? And she's probably interested in trying to find more kids too. Yeah. Rebuild civilization. Exactly. Oh man. Yeah. It's just really cool. The writing is, it's, it's just the perfect balance for me of simplicity, but depth. Mm -hmm. She doesn't waste words. She's able to create mood and atmosphere and communicate ideas in ways that I just find 
totally delightful. And it's got, you know, great structure where it starts in a pretty terrible place, takes us to an even worse place. You know, it's like when you think you've hit rock bottom and then you hear somebody knocking below kind of thing. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but then gives us that nice uplift at the end, a little bit of yeah. hope without giving us whatever gritty reality is about to actually take place. Right. Sure. And, you know, it's a good place to end it. But I wonder, you know, as I said earlier, we've seen the breakdown of society in lots of different films and stories. A lot of the times it's a zombie epidemic or a disease. Why take speech away? And why emphasize jealousy as driving people to rage? What is that all about? Do you think? Speech is one of those aspects that really separates us from all other life forms. It does. Like yeah. our, our complicated uh, communication system and the way that we're able to communicate ideas and emotions and feelings. Without that, I think the story really shows that we're animals still. And mm-hmm. if we, if that's taken away from us, we, we would just be as an animal would be. Yeah. The communication is so crucial to us having any kind of civilization and sharing resources of any kind. Without it, it becomes competition for resources all over again. Yeah. And I think that's maybe where the jealousy comes from. I'm certainly a curmudgeon about some communication things. When somebody texts me an emoji, you know, I always <laughs> respond with use your words. <laughs> I, I don't feel like speaking in symbols. Like, <laughs> I'm very encouraged by the fact that writing hasn't died. Email and texting and these kinds of things have kept people, you know, reading and writing is just as crucial as it's ever been. Right. I get a little angry when people just send me images. Yeah. <laughs> Admittedly. So wait a minute. Is she on to something here, Pfeiffer? Is that well, what you're I think that there's a, I, I think that maybe there's a backdoor message about communication and literacy here that these things are so important and we need to sure. keep focus on them because it is, as you say, what separates us from the animals. I mean, communication and speech for humans, like Steven Pinker, the linguist said, and I'm paraphrasing, but he said, you know, humans make speech like spiders spin webs. It's the skill that we have. It's the one yeah. thing, you know, that we, that we have that we do instinctually that makes us a successful species. But I I think that especially people who are in the teaching environment can look around sometimes and go, what is happening to us? You know, (laughs) Uh, people aren't emphasizing those kinds of skills anymore. And there's some basis for that. Well, she was actually thinking more about what gets people in fights, I think, because there's an afterword Mm -hmm. to this story that was included in later publications in which the author describes how this came to be. Uh, So I just outlined a couple little excerpts from it. Mm -hmm. She writes, Speech Sounds was conceived in weariness, depression, and sorrow. I began the story feeling little hope or liking for the human species. But by the time I reached the end of it, my hope had come back. It always seems to do that. That's nice. Yeah. In the early 1980s, a good friend of mine discovered that she was dying of of multiple myeloma, an especially dangerous, painful form of cancer. So every Saturday I got on a bus, I don't drive, and went to her hospital room or her apartment. She was going to visit her. It was mm-hmm. a depressing situation. And she writes, One Saturday, as I sat on a crowded, smelly bus, trying to keep people from stepping on my ingrown toenail and trying not to think of terrible things, I noticed trouble brewing just across from me. One man had decided he didn't like the way another man was looking at it. Didn't like it at all. It's hard to know where to look when you're wedged in place on a crowded bus. The wedged-in man argued that he hadn't done anything wrong, which he hadn't. He inched toward the exit as though he meant to get himself out of a potentially bad situation. Then he turned and edged back into the argument. Maybe his own pride was involved? Why the hell should he be the one to run away? This time, the other guy decided that it was his girlfriend sitting next to him who was being looked at inappropriately. That's so classic. (laughs) Are you looking at my girlfriend? So he attacked. The fight was short and bloody. The rest of us, the other passengers, ducked and yelled and tried to avoid being hit. 
In the end, the attacker and his girlfriend pushed their way off the bus, fearful that the driver would call the police. And the guy with the pride sagged, dazed and bloody, looking around as though he wasn't sure what had happened. I sat where I was, more depressed than ever, hating the whole hopeless, stupid business and wondering whether the human species would ever grow up enough to learn to communicate without using fists of one kind or another. And the first line of a possible story came to me. There was trouble aboard the Washington Boulevard bus. Hmm. So there's the inspiration and kind of a beautiful uh, creation story there, too. Yeah, it is. Wondering whether the human species would ever grow up enough to learn to communicate without using fists. Oh, boy. Uh, unfortunately, uh, Octavia didn't live to see a world where that has happened. Not sure if any of us will. Yeah. <laughs> and it's that pessimism which does make it uh, maybe, you know, it's not the weirdest story in the book, but it's pessimistic about humanity. And that's why we can say it's a little Lovecraftian, right? <laughs> we can sneak it in that way. <laughs> We're stretching it, but yeah. Sure. Well, I, I loved this story. I was glad we got to cover it. Me too. And hopefully in the future, we'll come back to Octavia. It doesn't have to be Black History Month. She's an outstanding writer in any month. Yeah. But we do have one more for this month. We were we didn't necessarily want to do any of these Conjure Woman stories. Yes, uh, by Charles W. Chestnut. Right, Charles W. Chestnut. But there was one that was recommended a couple times called Post Sandy. Yeah. We're going to cover that. Now, it's written mostly phonetically. Yeah. So it's going to be a difficult read. I have no idea how we're going to handle the excerpts, but yeah, we did it. You know, look, we've had to do this phonetic thing before. You know, usually it's a it's a Yorkshire or Cockney accent. And, <laughs> sure, you know, right. So, you know, we're going to try and do it here and get our way through it. I, it's a ghost story uh, by black author. It, it, it ticks off all of the requirements. I think we were just nervous about reading a story of that nature. But heck, we're going to give it a shot. Yes, yes. And it, I've read the synopsis of the story, and it is definitely weird. Yeah, yeah. I think it's it's got a lot of good weird elements in it that we can discuss. And then we'll just try and get through that language as best we can. So Post Sandy yeah. by Charles W. Chestnut will be next week. I want to thank our reader once again, Heather Klinky. Heather, you've done such a wonderful job, as always. I'm proud of you. And with that, I'm Chris Lackey. I'm Chad Pfeiffer. And you've been listening to the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast. At HPPodcraft.com. HPPodcraft.com. HP